As you're taking your seats, I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts chapter 3. I wanted to begin by just saying a really brief thank you. Many of you took the time to write some very encouraging thoughts and words to both myself and my family, and uh, um, I can just tell you it was such an incredible blessing. We were genuinely surprised, overwhelmed, and, and truly grateful. Uh, the five years of, of us being um, involved in this church have been some of the sweetest of our lives, and we are tremendously grateful for all of you and for what God is doing in this place and feel incredibly humbled by uh, all that you expressed to us. And one of the things that was so encouraging to both Sarah and I as we sat down and read through the letters, uh, one of the things we noted, the, the key theme really that we noted was that your, your thankfulness and encouragement to us was not directed primarily to us. It was directed to God. And, and that was such a, a blessing to us because that's the way it ought to be. Um, we're nothing without God, Amen. We have no usefulness apart from God. Apart from him, we can do nothing, Jesus said. We are nothing but cracked clay vessels, and so any good that comes out of us and through us is all for the glory and praise of his name, amen? And so we just, I was, we were so overwhelmed at how much you praise God for what he's doing in your lives. And I'm reminded of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 5 through 7. He said this, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So it's no trouble for me Uh, to affirm with you this morning that God deserves all of the glory and all of the praise for all that he's done in this place. And providentially this morning, um, in our text, a crowd is gathered around Peter and John, and they have the intent in their hearts and minds to give praise, not to God primarily, but to these men, to attribute power and glory and honor to these men. And what's so fascinating, again, in the providence of God, one of the things that they teach us is this, that no praise and honor is due to them, and they deflect that back to where it truly belongs to God himself. People are amazed at what they had just seen done. Last week, if you were with us, you remember the story. It truly is amazing. Here's Peter and John as they walk up to the temple at the time of prayer. They see a man sitting outside the beautiful gate, and he is born lame. He's born to be a beggar, and so he sits there, and he does what he always does. He begs for alms, and he expects the graciousness of people to contribute to his needs, and he's hopeless. Peter and John look directly at this man. They call for him to give them them his utmost attention and staring at him. They have no money to offer, but what they do have to offer is something far more amazing, something tremendous. They offer him essentially a new life. They declare, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up. And this man gets up, he walks, he leaps, and he shouts praises to God. And all of the people that have seen this, the thousands of people that are rushing into the temple, see this incredible miracle. 
They know this man. They know who he is. They know what his life's existence has looked like. And in an instant, they know for a fact that this man has been radically, supernaturally healed. And when power like this in particular, but power in general, is put on display, there's a danger to avoid. You see, people may focus on Christ's servants rather than on Christ himself, and Peter and John were very quick to divert any praise away from themselves and place it where it truly belongs, on God. Let's look at the text together and let's read. Beginning in chapter 3, we'll pick up at verse 11 where we left off last week, and we'll just read down to verse 19 together. It says this, while he, referring to the beggar, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or our piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore. And turn again that your sins may be blotted out. The power of Jesus Christ has been, on, been put on full display. And over the next few chapters, really from chapters 3 all the way to chapter 7, something is going to become evident. The name, you will see that phrase used often, the name will be the centerpiece of all the apostles and the church of Jesus Christ do. It will be the thing that drives them forward on the mission that God has called them to. And the power of this name has been unleashed in a, a powerful miracle that we saw last week points not primarily to the physical healing, but to a deeper spiritual need in every human being. The healing of the soul for each and every sinner is to be found in the name. Peter and John and the Spirit of God wants to make very clear this morning that the power of the name is what's on full display here. The power of the name is unleashed when first, notice this, we fix our eyes on Jesus. That is, in essence, what the apostles are doing with the crowds. Again, they've all gathered around. They want to understand this miracle. They want to understand who has done this and how it's possible that power like this could be manifested. And in verse 12, 
says, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. You see, God had set the stage perfectly for Peter to stand up and preach his second sermon. He does so, so faithfully, highlighting again as the center of the sermon, Jesus Christ. As the people are gathered around, Peter addresses them and he says these words, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why is this some kind of a surprise to you? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? See, at this point, everybody has just been utterly astounded by this miracle, and they've fixed their eyes on the apostles. They believe there's something inherently special about the apostles themselves. They believe that maybe they have some power in and of themselves, or maybe they have some some secret access to God that the average person doesn't have, or maybe they're simply holy enough to have been given this privilege by God. What you have to see is this, somehow the people are beginning to think that this was a result of Peter and John. This was by their doing, this is by somehow their actions where they have made God do for them what maybe they couldn't do on their own. But the emphasis is being placed on Peter and John. And so Peter declares, this is not our own power, and this is not a result of our piety. We we couldn't make this happen. We couldn't make God do this for us. We, We haven't manipulated God with our prayers or our personal holiness. His point is so crystal clear. This is not about us in any way at all. It's all about Jesus. This is so, so helpful and instructive, I believe, for us. How many people, even in the church of Jesus Christ, function so much like the world who are interested not in putting Jesus on display or God's glory on display, but are interested mainly in putting themselves on display? How many people are going through their life? How many of us are going through our lives more concerned about making sure that we are being propped up, we are being highlighted, that we are the center of attention, that people think well of us, that our reputation is what matters most? This is part of the human problem. You see, we're all very self-absorbed. I love this here. Claiming glory for themselves is not an option. Instead, they deflect it to Jesus. Yes, Jesus used them to perform this miracle, to display this power, but ultimately, the glory then belongs to him. I remember years ago now, wrestling with with just this issue in my own life, with living. I had been living, and I had seen this for my own glory above all else. I spent my my entire life through high school about making a name for myself, making it about me, and I remember specifically being convicted of this issue. I've been living for me. It's all about my glory. It's all about my reputation, and I remember asking a pastor to go out for coffee with me and to sit down with me and help me think through this because it was legitimately troubling me, and I didn't know how to handle this. And I'll never forget, as I sat for coffee with a pastor, genuinely wrestling over the pride of my accomplishments and my identity, genuinely seeking help, I remember him looking at me and saying, Ian, you just, you need to admit that you're really good. And then he said, Ian, it's okay, Ian. He said, Ian, I'm a great preacher. (laughs) It's okay, I'm a great preacher. It's great to say that. Now, in that moment, I was so convicted about ripping away glory from God. 
And God used that moment in my life in such an instrumental way to really shift the direction of my life to convince me of some of the prideful arrogance of my own heart. And by the grace of God, I was convicted that anything I had was not of me. It was all of him. I think of the words of Paul who said, what do we have that we have not received? And if we have received it, why why do we boast as if somehow this is our own doing? Here, the apostles deflected the praise because they knew that the power to heal was not their own. And so they explained the true power behind the miracle, the power of the name of Jesus. There is inherent power in the name of Jesus because of what it represents. And when God does something good through you, I want to encourage you this morning, what we learned from the apostles, one of the many things is this. When God does something through you, it's an opportunity for you to give glory to him. Anytime God uses you in somebody's life, and, and look, there's, there's a place for biblical affirmation and encouragement. We need to be encouraging one another. But look, uh, one of the things I, I love about the Apostle Paul, every time you read Paul, he prays for the church. He's thankful to the church. But every time he does it, you want to know what he tags on there? I am thankful to God when I think of you, when I pray for you. He's always conscious of the reality that God is the one who uses people. God is the one who gifts people. God is the one who deserves the praise, the glory, and the thanksgiving. And so I want to encourage you. God is going to use you to do things in other people's lives. The question is, when they acknowledge how God has used you, will you take that as an opportunity to point them back to the one who is using you? Will you graciously and humbly show them that God is so gracious? God is the one who is worthy of praise. Peter wants to direct their focus now specifically to who Jesus is and what he has done. And as a consequence of that, he wants to open their eyes to the reality of what they have truly done. And so verse 13, look at it with me. It says this. He begins it with this phrase, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. He begins with the familiar formula, so to speak, phraseology there referring to the patriarchs, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was a common way of reflecting upon God in the Old Testament. The question is, why does he approach them like this? Why does he see it as necessary to bring this to their attention? And the answer is incredibly important. He doesn't just address them like this because they're Jewish and they would know who these guys are. There is significance to what God had said through these individuals, specifically what God had promised to do through these individuals. He's causing them to reflect back on the patriarchs and to reflect back on the promises that God had made, the covenants that God had made to them. And what he's essentially saying is this, that this one, this one who you denied, this one who you delivered over, this servant Jesus, he is the one that actually was spoken of long ago. He was the one that God promised in the covenants, the promises he made to these individuals. They all point to Jesus Christ. God has fulfilled these long-awaited promises by glorifying his servant Jesus. Now, 
This word servant that he uses here is, is again, it's incredibly important. Again, in the Old Testament context, you have to, you have to put yourself in their shoes and, and understand why he's using language that he is. And as he's referring back to the, the patriarchs and he looks now to Jesus, one of the phrases he uses, one of the titles he gives to Jesus is the title servant. And, and just this is a little bit, of, we're going to kind of put on our thinking caps for a minute, okay? This is a little bit more into the weeds, but this is really, really important. So follow me in this, okay? The word servant used in the Greek New Testament, well, you know, when you think of Paul, when Paul says, I, Paul, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, this language is used often. The Greek word that's used there is the word doulos. It's the most common word used for servant. It's the most common word used for slave. But here, here, listen, listen, Luke chooses a different word, a very unique word for a servant. He chooses a, a word that's more rare in the New Testament context. But listen, in, 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 here's just a helpful understanding of what's going on. The, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Now, before the time of Jesus, the Old Testament had been translated into Greek. And Greek was the common language of the day. It's called the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, the, this is the Bible that they would have had great access to in that time. In the Septuagint, this word that Peter uses for servant takes you all the way. It connects directly back to one specific Old Testament passage, Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. And, and I, I trust, as Brian read it, to you this morning, it was a passage that is familiar to many of you, but let me just highlight specifically where this word is used. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 12, just listen to this, or verse 13, behold my servant. That's the word that Peter is drawing attention to. He goes on to say, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. Remember the context here, the glorified one of God. That's who's being referred to here. This is the servant who is lifted up. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Listen to this, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. You see, the reference to servant is an eye-opening word for them. Instantly in their minds, they would have been taken right back to this. They should have been taken right back. This is the one, you see, that was promised through the prophets of old. This is the one that God was talking about. This servant who would be marred beyond any kind of recognition. We refer to Isaiah chapters 52 and 53 as a suffering servant song. This passage describes the Messiah as the suffering servant, the one who is obedient even to the point of death. And Peter is saying that this is the one who carries, listen, all the weight of God's plan on his shoulders. But look at the contrast, and the contrasts in this section are just staggering. This is the one, this is the servant who bears the weight of God's plan of redemption. All of it rests upon him. He is the key to human history and restoration and reconciliation with God. But look what you did. But you denied the holy and righteous one. 
You delivered him over. You denied him in the presence of Pilate. And and look, he wants to paint this picture of, of irony to them. Don't you see? Pilate was ready to let him go. The pagan was ready to let him go. You who should have seen him as the servant. You're the ones who delivered him up. You're the ones who were ultimately responsible. This is a great, great weight he's laying upon them. And he doesn't stop there. I mean, instantly in their minds, you can imagine some of the people here were actually present at the crucifixion of Jesus. It's guaranteed. How many of them were the ones who were declaring to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar? But at this point, I wonder, as they're processing all that Peter is declaring, remember, they're just hearing this for the first time, and all of a sudden you'd be thinking, well, how is that power? Really? He was delivered over to a pagan? He was put to death? How is that power? I don't understand. Look at verse 14. He's saying, you're right, you, you don't understand, but you denied the holy and righteous one, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. These terms are not insignificant. Jesus was the holy one. This, again, listen, has messianic implications. There's so many connections here, not only to the entire Old Testament, but specifically to the book of Isaiah. This term, the Holy One, is used oftentimes in reference to God himself, but there are multiple times in which Isaiah in particular, as as God is speaking about himself, he makes reference to his Holy One, another one like him. Let me give you some examples of this. First, there's going to be a couple on the screen, but before I get to those, let me just give you just one. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15 says this, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. On the screen behind me, notice this, Isaiah 43, verse 3 says this, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. And look at Isaiah 55, verse 5, also on the screen. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God, and, look at this, and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. He is the Holy One of God. He is, in other words, perfect and sinless. Holy means to be set apart from sin unto God. Not only that, he he stacks this up some more. He is the righteous one. Another allusion to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11. Listen to this. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteousness, and he shall bear their iniquities. You can see, listen, he is building a case before them that they cannot refute, that they cannot not see. And he's not finished there. He he just keeps stacking up the evidence and the weight of guilt upon them. Look at verse 15. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Look at the irony there. 
the author of life can have some really important meanings. It, it could mean simply the originator of life, and, and, and certainly Jesus is that, but let me give you a better translation. That word for author can actually be translated legitimately as prince. In some translations, it is. You killed, in other words, the prince of life. And that's significant because in the ancient Near East, in that culture, the prince was the one who led the charge against the enemy. He was the one who would pave the way to victory. He was the one who led the charge. And here, that's exactly what we see when we look at the cross, isn't it? Here is Jesus Christ, the prince of life, the one who stared death in the face and who went out and conquered not only Satan, but sin and death. He trampled them, putting them to open shame, Paul says in Colossians 2. He leads the charge against the enemy, and by victory, he paves the way to the path of life. His resurrection, right? Do you see that? Do you see how the resurrection is highlighted as the way that God actually takes this gruesome death of Christ and makes sure that the pathway to life is clear? He looks at them and he says, you demanded the condemnation of an innocent man. And, and you demanded the release of somebody who was truly guilty. You killed the one who was responsible for true life. But by the grace of God and the power of God, he has been raised. Don't miss the culpability and the blame that Peter is laying heavily upon them. He is confronting them with the staggering reality of their sin. As they see Jesus Christ, they can see their sin for what it truly is. You denied, you delivered over, you traded this one, you killed him, you're responsible. As we look at this, just a few things we can glean from this. Notice this first. First of all, faithful biblical proclamation always confronts people with their sin. Faithful biblical proclamation, whether it's from the pulpit or whether it's in evangelism, all true faithful biblical evangelism confronts people with their sin. You have to confront people with their sin. And I'm not saying to beat people with their sin, but you have to let them experience. the. Way. Sometimes in our evangelism, we want to try and alleviate the guilt from people. We, we want to make it seem as if their sin's really not that bad. Right? Why? Why do we do that? Well, because we're afraid that they're going to think that we're, we're somehow judging them or we're being too harsh or, or maybe that it will scare them away. Can I just tell you that Peter had no problem laying the weight of their sin upon them? And here's why. They needed it. They, they needed to understand the gravity of what they had done. And some of you in here today, you don't know Jesus Christ. You don't know where you stand with God. And what you need to hear is this. The weight of your sin is very serious. Second thing you need to understand is this. Our sin is fundamentally and primarily a rebellion against God. That's what he's addressing with the people here. He's saying, don't you understand? God did all of this. God provided this servant. God told you about this servant. You rejected this servant. Your sin at its heart is in opposition, not simply, listen, not simply to a man named Jesus. Your opposition is to God Almighty. All sin. All sin, when you boil it down to its fundamental grassroots level, is, uh, listen, it is rebellion against God. That's why all sin is punishable by God. 
It's a rejection of his kingship, of his rulership in our lives. Note this as well, that you can only understand the severity of your sin when you see Jesus for who he truly is. See, there's a sense here in, in which, listen, Peter's not just heaping guilt and shame. He's not just you know, pie, you know, dogpiling on them and pointing out their sin. What he's wanting to do is highlight their sin in contrast to the one they sinned against. Do you see that? You see, he's, he's magnifying Christ. He's putting the spotlight on who Christ is and all of his beauty and all of his glory and his holiness, his righteousness. And he's saying, don't you get it? That's why your sin is so serious. And if we are truly going to point sin out in each other's lives and, in, and help unbelievers see the reality of their sin, we must become skilled at presenting the beauty of Jesus Christ. It's like approaching light when you're in the midst of darkness. Right? The light is far off, and the closer you get to the light, the more and more you're able to see yourself. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you see the beauty and the glory and holiness of Jesus, the more you're able to see who you truly are. And so the call first is to fix your eyes on Jesus. To do that, by the way, to fix your eyes on Jesus, you must take your eyes off of everything else. And that is exactly what Peter is intent on doing. He's wanting all of the distractions out of the way. He's wanting even the thought of the miracle to take a secondary place, and he's wanting them to focus their eyes and attention on the name of Jesus Christ. Secondly, note this. The power of the name is unleashed when you place your trust in Jesus. Now at this point, just notice this, the, the weight of guilt is enormous. I mean, it is, it is a crushing, heavy weight that's been placed upon them. But notice this also, their murder of Jesus was unsuccessful. Jesus was not dead, he was alive, and his power was being put on display before their very eyes. Now, verse 16 is really the centerpiece of this entire section of Scripture. It, it, it is the most crucial aspect of this passage. It's the key verse in this passage, and it explains all of the questions that, that they're asking about what's taking place, how this is possible, who's responsible for this power and this miracle. The construction of this verse is awkward, but it's awkward, I think, simply to highlight, again, you'll notice two things, the name of Jesus and faith that is necessary. Notice what verse 16 says, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. The repetition in this verse is incredibly important. It's not normal to speak like this. You wouldn't begin a sentence by saying, and his name, and neither would they in Greek. But what you need to know is this. When something is placed at the beginning in a Greek sentence, it's usually because it has the place of prominence and priority. 
And so you have to see that what Peter is doing is he's wanting to make it so abundantly clear. All of this is about the name, the power to heal, the power to give hope, the strength that you have seen on display is all about the name. Peter is saying, listen up, Israel. It's through the name of Jesus that this miracle has happened. Now, we need to understand that the name of Jesus is not some kind of a magical formula or an absolute power that operates apart from the person it represents. We are accustomed to praying as we are told to do in Jesus' name. The danger is, uh, you know, and I do this all the time, and one time I, I was praying with my, my daughter, Karis, and, and I, I closed the prayer and I just said, amen, and she stopped me. She said, Dad, you forgot to say in Jesus' name. As if, you know, for her, hearing me say that so often, she was beginning to think that that was kind of like the stamp of approval that sealed the prayer, that made sure God was listening, and that what we prayed for actually came to pass. How many of us would not admit that that's what we believe, but use that phrase and really portray that that's what we think? Throwing the name of Jesus on something is not the magic formula to make God listen. But the name of Jesus is incredibly important. Just, just think about what comes to your mind when I throw out a name. Uh, Michael Jordan, Barack Obama, Billy Graham. You see, the name represents something significant, right? It represents their accomplishments. Maybe it represents their authority. It represents what they've done we were uh, recently, when we were just a couple weeks ago away, we, we met a gentleman. His name was Junior. And Junior was a really nice guy. And we, we got talking with Junior, and he was telling us about his life. And he'd spent some time in the States, but he came back. And, and we were kind of picking, well, why did you come back? Why did you want to come back and live on the island? And he said to us, he said, he said you know, everybody knows me here. It's, just, it's great. He's like, e- even the police. He's like, the, like, like, if you get pulled over or something like that, just tell them, you know, Junior. <laughs> I'm like, great, that's perfect, we get locked up or something like that, just throw Junior and, you know, but his point wasn't lost on us, right? See, his name, at least to him, meant something significant and people responded to it in a certain way. Well, so to write the name of Jesus, it's what it represents that's important. The name Jesus in and of itself is significant, The Old Testament, people were named with great intentionality and great forethought. The name of Jesus, by the way, which was not the choice of Mary and Joseph, an angel from God told them to name him Jesus. The name Jesus is the New Testament version of the Old Testament name Joshua. And that's significant because the name Joshua means Yahweh is salvation. The name of Jesus represents his divine power and authority. The name of Jesus symbolizes for us what he accomplished on the cross, the power to defeat sin and Satan, the authority over all those things. And specifically, as highlighted by this miracle, what we see this is that Jesus, the name of Jesus, has divine power and authority to accomplish the blessing of salvation. Again, saving doesn't take place because the right formula is pronounced and somebody uses the name Jesus. Just like salvation doesn't come from somebody who simply raises their hand or walks an aisle, that is not, that is not guaranteeing salvation. But listen, 
Saving comes because Jesus is openly acknowledged as the only source of help and salvation. And that's exactly what Peter is highlighting here. He highlights the name, but don't miss this. This healing power has been because of faith. It's hard to get around by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. The faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. It's not clear in the text whether the faith here refers to the faith of the the lame beggar himself or the faith of Peter and John. It's likely, listen, that it refers actually to both, that that this idea of faith is all-encompassing in this picture. Now, understand this, that somebody's healing was not always dependent upon their faith. There are times when Jesus, there are times when the apostles will heal people, and it is regardless of expressing any faith. And it is in many ways the, in the absence of them expressing faith. But there are many instances in Scripture when somebody's faith is used by God to bring about their healing. There's an example of a very similar situation in Acts chapter 14, 9, when the apostles look at a man and recognize that he has faith to be healed. It's possible that back in chapter 6 when Peter and John look at this lame man in his condition and, and tell him that they have no silver and gold, but what they do have they give to him in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It's possible that at that point that man had faith in Jesus Christ. And you say, well, how, how would he know anything about Jesus Christ? Listen, this man had been sitting outside this gate. This man had heard about Jesus Christ in his ministry for three years. The name of Jesus Christ was everywhere. And especially if you were sick. You remember the stories of Jesus? People are literally flocking to the house of Jesus. They're bringing their sick, and they're bringing people from all the, the villages that are coming in, and they're desperately seeking healing. You better believe that this man had heard that this man, there was a man who was healing people like him. It's possible that at that point, instantly he began to think, I've heard of this Jesus, I've heard that he has the power to heal, and I believe that he could heal me. Note this as well, Peter and John, they did what they did because they themselves had faith in Jesus. They walked up to this man and they spoke to this man and they declared that in the name of Jesus Christ he could be healed because they believed and they had been given, listen, the power by Jesus Christ to do what they did. They believed wholeheartedly. They trusted in Jesus Notice this, that faith was not something they conjured up, but it was caused by Jesus himself. And I, I want to make a, a very clear distinction, too, in our minds. We are not saved by faith. You understand that? What are we, we are saved by what? Grace through faith. That's significant. Because if we're saying we're saved by our faith, and that, that, that puts the responsibility and onus primarily on who? Us. But do you remember what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. I hope so. Right on the screen behind us here. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. And this is so important because what we see, this man is leaping and praising God. You see, the salvation that came through his faith points him back to the one who graciously redeemed him. The one who graciously healed him. 
There is no salvation. Notice this, if we're looking at this text carefully, it needs to be said there is no salvation apart from faith in Jesus Christ. There is no salvation apart from faith in Jesus Christ. We, we believe in an exclusive message, and that, listen, that goes against the grain of our tolerant society that wants to be all-encompassing, wants to be universalistic, wants to believe that all paths lead to the top of the mountain. We live in a relativistic, subjective culture, and how dare you judge somebody and say that their belief is wrong and There is no salvation apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Notice this as well. There is no power apart from faith in Christ. And and look, the church had power because it had faith in Jesus' name. It, listen, it fully trusted Jesus. It's essential then, this is what Charles Spurgeon says, it is essential then that we should have faith if we are to be useful and that we should have great faith if we are to be greatly useful. This is so simple, but it's so true. Faith in the name of Jesus Christ brings power to the church. A church that does not trust in Jesus Christ, the source of all power and the source of all authority, will be a weak church, will be an ineffective church. But the church who demonstrates their faith and trust in the Lord will be a church that is mighty and powerful, where people are being changed, where people are being saved. If you look through scriptures, one of the things you'll notice is this, that any man or woman who has ever done anything substantial for Christ has done so only by faith in his name. That's why Hebrews chapter 11 exists, the hall of fame of faith, to remind us of where the power belongs. To trust in Jesus is ultimately to obey, to rest in his strength, to find our true joy in him. The call is given here to place your trust in Jesus. Peter and John are highlighting this reality that this man is only made well because of faith. It is the power of God and the power of God alone. It is the power that's found in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they turn the corner here, and you'll notice this next. Power of God is unleashed when you find your hope in Jesus. You find your hope in Jesus in verse 17 and 18 are really important verses, and and Peter kind of turns a corner here. He's making clear to them that faith in Jesus is necessary for experiencing his saving power. He and John have it, this beggar has it, but this crowd has been so vigorously and thoroughly confronted in their sinful rejection of Jesus Christ. Remember, the weight of guilt is weighing upon them. Perhaps many at this point are beginning to wonder if there's really any hope for them. As their eyes are being opened, as their hearts are being awakened to the reality of what they've done to the promised one of God, Jesus Christ. There are so many, I imagine, in this scene who are beginning to feel utterly hopeless and despairing and believing that there really is no hope for them. But the miracle is pointing to the reality that there is hope for the hopeless. 
the very miracle that they have performed is reminding them that they are not lost, that the guilty can be forgiven. And so here's what he says. Look at this. I love this. And now, brothers, don't skip too fast by that. Do you see how sensitive that is? You have to, you have to catch the, 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 the tenderness and compassion. Right? He's not jumping all over them saying, how dare you? He's calling them brothers. Brothers, listen. As you feel the weight of this guilt, this is a good thing. I don't want to remove it from you, but br- let me talk to you tenderly. Maybe, let me talk to you gently and graciously without backing away from his condemnation of their guilt, Peter acknowledges, look at this, that they had no idea what they were doing. This is gracious. This is kind. This is compassionate. He says, I know you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. All of you acted ignorantly. Let's be honest, they didn't really understand what they were doing. They didn't really understand who it was despite, listen, despite the plain words of Jesus and the powerful signs and wonders that he performed somehow along the line, they they simply did not understand what Jesus was saying. You ever get angry and frustrated with people who just will not believe in Jesus? They just can't get it or understand it, no matter how much you talk to them about it, no, how, no matter how clearly you explain it. How frustrating, right, can it be when you're like, why don't you get this? Come on, it's, it's not that hard. What a rebuke to us, right? I mean, how, how, how sensitive ought we to be the, to the reality that these are people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. They're blind to the truth of the gospel. That Satan himself is deceiving them. He's keeping them in darkness. They're enslaved to their sin, right? They, they cannot break free. And what compassion and grace we ought to show and how it is modeled here so beautifully by Peter. Paul says the same thing. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8, he says, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Who in their right mind, knowing that this really was God, would have put him on a cross? Now, this idea of ignorance here may be echoing this Old Testament idea and distinction between intentional and unintentional sins. In the Old Testament system, there was a designation uh, for, you know, there was all of, in the sacrificial system, there were ways in which you had to deal with your sin before God, but there was distinction made specifically in Numbers chapter 15 and also in portions of Leviticus where people are, are, it's acknowledged that sometimes their sin is not done intentionally, they simply don't know, and, and when they do know, you know, you experience the conviction, we've all been in that category, right? Where somebody comes alongside us and says, hey, you don't you know that this is sin? You're like, no, I had no idea that that was sin, or I had no idea that I was doing that. And the distinction is made in Numbers uh, chapter 15 between this unintentional sin and uh, what's referred to as intentional, or, or here's the word that's used, high-handed. In other words, willfully rebellious sin, right? You know what I'm talking about. You know, you know, when you know for sure that this is sin and you make the conscious decision to go after it, And in the Old Testament context, this is important because unintentional sin, there was provisions made in the sacrificial system for atonement for that sin. But when it came to high-handed sin, there was no provision made. This is scary. In fact, the language used in 
Numbers 15, 27 through 31 says that they are to be cut off from the people. It's possible that there is an allusion here to this. And, and I wonder if we can just think for a second ab- about this. You see, when we approach people in, in sin, it's important to understand that there could be ignorance involved and not everybody is willfully rejecting God and Jesus Christ. Listen, by their, but by suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness, they are rejecting God. But many of them don't know what they're doing. And I was, I was contemplating, you know, for years and years, the North America, we've lived in a culture where people were familiar with the gospel, right? They've been brought up in the church, they've heard the gospel. Increasingly more in North America, we are becoming more and more secularized. And at one point, it was, it was listen, in our history, the history of our country, at one point, it was almost impossible not to believe in God and in, and in some way believe in some of the truths of the Bible. But we are living now in a time where it is almost impossible to believe. The rejection of any kind of theistic authority is wholesale. And I, I, I mention that because I think it needs to impact, listen, we might have to adapt how we approach people. We can no longer approach people on the basis of, hey, have you, have you thought about the fact that you're a sinner? Or have you thought about the fact, uh, do, do you know who Jesus is? You want to know what the resounding answer from the majority of people is today? No. I don't know what you're talking about. And we as, as the church need to be prepared we need, we need to approach people in their ignorance. I just want to make it very clear. Notice what Peter is doing. He's not excusing their ignorance. He's exposing their ignorance. And that too is the way we approach people. I love this because this is exactly what God did, isn't it, to the Apostle Paul? He exposed his ignorance. And Paul says this in 1 Timothy 1.13. He's speaking of himself. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. I I love the hope that's given here. This is how we must approach people. And just as this hopeless lame beggar received healing, so too these lost and hopeless sinners can find the hope of healing in the very one they crucified. Look at verse 18. This is another just glimpse of the hope that is offered in the name of Jesus. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. In other words, yes, you're responsible. Yes, you are ignorant. Yes, you are culpable. But don't think that this is outside the bounds of God's plan. God planned all of this. God is sovereign over all of this. He's in complete control, and that ought to give you hope. He knows, listen, he knows what you've done. He knows how serious your offense is, but he also knows that what you did, you did in ignorance. Your eyes are blind, and God has compassion for you. Isn't that awesome news? Without that, listen, without that, every one of us would be damned to hell for eternity. We would deserve it. But by the grace of God, God makes an appeal to us 
This was the plan, and Jesus and his suffering were in that plan, and the prophets spoke of the one who must suffer for it is by his wounds that we are healed. Amen? I mean, that is the hope for our souls. No suffering equals no salvation. And Jesus on the cross, if you're saying, well, is, is, let me just build this case a little bit further. Do you remember as Jesus talked about the ignorance, talked about the plan of God, as Jesus hung on the cross knowing the plan of God, do you remember what his final words were before he declared it is finished? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Wow. Even for those who participated in the death of the Messiah, even for those who stood by and mocked Jesus, even for those who, who declared that he was nothing but a fake and a fraud and a criminal, those who participated in having Jesus handed over and crucified, there is forgiveness and hope made available for them. Who, let me ask you, who is outside the bounds of God's glorious grace? No one. How is this forgiveness available? Lastly, notice this, submit your life to Jesus. And we're just going to scratch the surface of this verse because next week we're going to unfold all of what really is launched from it. But notice, notice what he says here. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. We've talked about repentance before. Acts 17.30 tells us that the times of ignorance God has once overlooked, but now is the time of repentance. To do repent, to repent is to do a full turn away from our sin and to turn fully to Jesus Christ in all that he offers. It is a demonstration and a declaration of our surrender and our submission to him, not only as Savior, but to uh, him as our Lord. And here Peter tells them that they need to do the total opposite of what they had done the first time they were exposed to Jesus. The first time they denied him, the first time they handed him over, the first time they rejected him, the first time they killed him. But now, now they were given the opportunity to turn around and embrace him and accept him and submit to him. Genuine repentance involves a radical reorientation of our life, turning back to God to seek reconciliation and to express a new obedience and radical submission to Him. When that happens, look at what it produces. That your sins may be blotted out. That's such a beautiful phrase. That's the phrase we stake our souls on, don't we? Because if our sins are not blotted out, then every one of us stands before God, not just guilty and condemned. We stand before God unjustified. We stand before God deserving of punishment right now. But listen, if our sins have been blotted out, if they've been truly, listen, the other, the way to think of this is erased, absolutely obliterated, utterly annihilated. They have been taken care of. There is no glimpse of your sin. It's not like they've simply faded away and there's a trace of them left. There is nothing left because they were laid entirely, completely, wholly upon Jesus Christ, the one who is capable of completely paying for it all. 
utterly erased. The certificate of debt has been nailed to the cross. It is stamped paid in full. There's nothing left to be paid. There never will be for all of eternity. Jesus has paid it all. I love Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12. Listen, listen let, this, let this stir your heart and prepare you to take the Lord's Supper. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Complete submission to Jesus brings complete eradication of our sins against Jesus through the complete payment made by Jesus. This is what we celebrate when we look at the cross, amen? Jesus is the great eraser of our sins because he alone is the great payment for our sins. There's power in the name of Jesus. The greatest power of all is the power to forgive, to make us white as snow. 